Hello everybody and welcome to the podcast owl or back to the podcast if you're listening again. My name is Nav and before we begin, I want to get a few things out of the way. First off, I want to say I hope all of you are doing great in the new year and let's accomplish our goals or something cheesy like that. But anyways, the novel we are going to talk about today is something very special to me because it covers many topics that affect social problems that have plagued India thousands of years ago and even today. Also, it is written by an author who I have a lot of admiration and respect for. So let's get into it. Professor Kancha Ailea was born on October 5, 1952 in a small village called Papayapet in the Varangal district of Telangana, a state in India. His family and community that he grew up in were part of the Gola Kalma sect within the Yadava caste. They were essentially pastoral groups of people that specialized in farming and herding buffaloes, goats, and other wild stock. In his life, his mother was a persistent figure throughout his childhood and adolescence, due to his father working in the fields and seldom interacting with him. This environment, made by his community struggles and his mother's dominant presence, shaped and molded his stories and way of thought. Specifically, in the injustice and perpetuation of the caste system. and overall dominism as well as ways to combat and rectify these injustices against numerous odds he graduated and gained acceptance into Osmania University in Hyderabad there he earned his MA in political science soon after his masters of philosophy in the same field he earned an PhD based on his exploration of buddhism applied to politics later he taught political science as a professor in Osmania University and soon became the head of that department He is best known for his protest against the caste system and the government policies that perpetuate the discrimination and his activism for Dalit and other backwards castes, rights and liberties, plus his numerous books that detail his take on these problems. One of these movements was to promote English in education systems. Since English is an international language, exposure to English would greatly improve or plus castes chance of climbing the international social ladder. And in fact, English has been historically gatekept by upper castes and has been discouraged to lower castes, so it is of utmost importance to finally break that social barrier. One personal action that Professor Ailea has taken is to insert shepherd into his own name, not only to display and pay respect to his origins, but also to emphasize his promotion of the English language and its usefulness to his community and other oppressed ones. Even more important than his awards such as the Mahatma Phule Award, are his numerous books that spanned his time from college to the present that are taught in the syllabuses of prestigious universities such as JNU starting from the book Why I Am Not a Hindu which covers the idiosyncrasies and blatant discrimination in Hinduism and the religious dominant Indian society through the lenses of Ailea's experiences most of his books are non-fiction and are written in an analytical style But the novel I want to focus on today deviates from that pattern but it still masterfully addresses the issues Professor Ailea advocates against. So without further ado, let's get into Untouchable God by Kancha Ailea. Let's first talk about the stylistic aspect of Untouchable God. Untouchable God is written in a third person omniscient which makes sense for the sake of the plot which I will get into soon. But more importantly, all good pieces of fiction are able to create a world that seems realistic as if these events are truly happening in front of us even though this is a somewhat easier task to accomplish since the plot is based on the actual events that have happened and continue to happen in India Ailea employs the use of dialogue to immerse the reader into the story 
Both external and internal dialogue not only show the social interaction between characters that is core to conveying the theme to the reader, but also gives the illusion of being present with the characters, feeling the same emotions, thinking the same thoughts. This is what gives substance and clouded reality in Untouchable God, and what makes its fiction understandable and believable. Untouchable God opens up in a region that will be present-day Tamil Nadu with an internal dialogue between a man simply known as Paraya which should clue you in on his social status. He is a Dalit, the lowest of the low in the caste system, not even recognized as human and currently he is carrying a bundle of grain, presumably to deliver it to Brahmin landlords. We can infer this because he says he is going to the opposite side of the village, away from the peasants and other Dalits. We already see casteism influencing where people live and what jobs people do. While he was delivering the bundles of crops, his mind starts to wander about his subhuman place in life and his family. He contemplates his existence. Why is he considered filth? Why he was created as if he was to be outcasted? Why does he and his family only experience pains and no pleasure? However, a few moments later, unidentified goons beat him up with the intent of killing him. We soon learn that they did so because they noticed a protagonist looking like he was thinking, and assumed that he was pondering about the equality of Dalits. This caught me off guard because it was very unlikely that a superficial, abrupt reason like that is what prompted these thugs to assault him, but we will soon learn more about this incident. He soon wakes up in a missionary hospital, where he is being healed. These hospitals are considered extremely unholy according to Hindu communities. We then change seemingly to a house which is presumably in the same village where six Brahmins, who are the highest in the caste hierarchy, are essentially celebrating via a huge feast. These six Brahmins are from different regions of India and represent different forms and degrees of casteism across India. We find that the feast was intended to commemorate the death of the Pariah, which they claim to bring into reality. This confirms our earlier notions that was a pre-meditated attack for something Pariah must have done earlier. Maybe he disobeyed caste rules, religious rules, we really don't know. But anyways, during the feast, we see the gender discrimination of Indian society through how the females are forced to cook the food and not even look at the men as they eat. Also, they are forced to wear wet clothes as they cook due to some irrational religious justification. There is also dialogue between the Brahmins talking about the pollution of females. Then, after this buffet, along with some chanting, the Brahmins disperse back to their respective places, and now the use of third-person omniscient comes into play, because the story splits and follows each of the Brahmins and narrates their journeys from there. Throughout telling these individual stories, the author highlights the atrocities and discrimination that these Brahmins perpetuate in their societies, which I will go over. In the first act, we see Nambudri getting off a bus and visiting Sita Mahalakshmi, who is essentially his sexual slave, who he has entered Sambandham with. Sambandham is essentially an agreement in which one of the younger sons of the Nambudri caste would have sexual intercourse with the Naya or other Shudra women and have kids with them, but they would not marry. Essentially, these women would be prostitutes with no charge for these fellows. We are shown how women and lower caste are supposed to be half-naked like animals according to tradition, and we see an animosity towards Christians and Christianity. As time passes, he runs a local temple in town, and eventually Sita tells Nambudri that she is going to be a Sati, a widow who is supposed to die on the day of her husband's funeral. Her reasoning is that her life is essentially useless because of him, and so she might as well act as a widow and give up whatever freedom she has left. This deeply upsets Nambudri, who stops visiting her, and he delves deeper into his job with managing the temple. 
Eventually, he becomes a member of the board of the trustees for that temple. In the second act, Nambudri is walking on a Sunday to the temple where he is suddenly in the middle of a Christian festival, and the masses rush towards a church where he's dragged along as well. Here he sees a differently total Here he sees a totally different set of values that he is used to. Egalitarian messages, equality of all, clothed people, and most importantly, lower castes being allowed in places of worship where they weren't allowed to congregate in Hindu temples. He even sees Pariah, yes, the same Pariah whom they thought they killed. After this extreme culture shock, Nambudri goes into a sick trance and he believes that Jesus is calling him to turn Christian, which I find very amusing. However, he does not like that Jesus does not discriminate against who is allowed to worship him. So he decides to call in a bishop who is also of Nambudri's status, named Benjamin Chako. Chako says that there is nothing to worry about and that Indian Christianity is being created in which casteism would be involved and untouchables would not be recognized as equal under Jesus. He then converts Nambudri and walks away. Finally, Nambudri is at peace. Because he knows through Christianity or Hinduism, the caste system will be preserved. Next, we have Telak of Maharashtra. In this chapter, we see the religious discrimination and manipulation of lower castes by a Brahminical society. At first, we see Tilak and his group of followers assemble a little meeting in which they conclude that after the British give independence to India, the battle of religious dominance will be between Muslims and the Hindus, and if they want to win, they must create a militant organization aimed at the youth in order to cultivate extremist thinking. About 18 years earlier, two low-caste parents, a fruit vendor and a street sweeper, give birth to a daughter named Saraswati and decide to dedicate their lives to try to give a proper education for their child. They were initially rejected by a Hindu priest to teach their daughter. Fortunately, they were invited to join a Muslim all-girls education facility and to assist Saraswati to get to the school safely on the other side of town. A little boy around the same age as her, named Hussein, would escort her and then go to school himself. Saraswati and Hussein grew up and Saraswati excelled at school. Eventually, they both fell in love and told their parents. Surprisingly, everything went smoothly and even Saraswati converted to Islam and changed her name to Mumtaz B. She married Hussein and as well as went to live with him. However, Hindu extremists, likely Tilak's group, caught word of this marriage and because soon after, Hussein was found in the street mangled and dead, with a message written in broken English warning Mumtaz B to change her name. This prompted Muslim extremists to then kill Hindu shudras at markets, and if things couldn't get any worse for Tilak, a young Brahmin graduate from Oxford named Dandekar was arrested by the British police for being near the Hussein crime scene putting up casteist posters. Thus, Tilak and his group decide to take revenge on the Muslims and release Dandekar by religiously manipulating the shudras to incite at yet another riot. They do this by essentially spreading anti-Muslim Hindu extremist propaganda to lower caste communities, specifically including a very important message. Quote, a seen and touchable God is real. An unseen and untouchable God is unreal. Do not believe book readers, believe only book reciters. End quote. Now, this is an obvious reference to how Hindu gods are very tangible in image. There are millions of idols and statues for these gods and well, you can see them. They feel real. While there is no idol for Allah because that is against religious practice, Allah is beyond human understanding. 
This propaganda successfully enrages the Shuga community and of course, soon after, there's a huge Hindu festival taking place in the streets throughout the town. The Shugas enter a Muslim neighborhood and the crowd goes on an absolute rampage. It is worthy to note that the Muslims and Shugas that are being killed and do most of the killing are equally impressed themselves and deal with many of the same problems the Brahmins impose upon them. You do not see Brahmins being killed or acting upon their Hindu nationalist promises. Like cowards, they simply incite animosity between two groups who should be the most understanding of each other. The police lock up 10 rioters, they release Dandekar, and in the end, Mumtaj is also found by the British police and then presumably returned to her parents. Next up is Banerjee of Bengal. In this episode, our attention is less upon Banerjee and more upon his family and his household, especially his third son, locally named Basu. So let's talk about Calcutta, Bengal, which is literally divided into two worlds. First is the world of the Bhadralok, which literally means gentlemen. Upper castes occupy this world and oddly enough, this world is mostly casteless because there's no reason for it to have steadfast caste rules. Everyone is of respectable status and presumably of respectable castes, so every social encounter is pure. Caste is not noticed. Same thing if you were born in a wealthy gated community like Beverly Hills. Your customs, traditions, social nuances, social status, economic status would be shared by everybody else. So you don't really recognize your privileges or other peculiar traits. It's just natural. And now the other world of Calcutta is the Abhadralok, which you can guess is mostly impoverished and inhabited with the major populous lower caste people. Thus, caste is needed and is enforced. And now some info on Banerjee and his third son. Banerjee was an idealist and a little bit of a socialist when he was young, but he was eventually married off like any other Hindu Bengali Brahmin, and he left his idealist socialist dreams behind. Basu graduated from college about three years ago and is now occupied with reading and participating in social circles that deal with radical ideas such as communism, which is slowly becoming popular. Banerjee is a dark parallel of what Basu is destined to become if he does not pursue his liberal philosophies and break free from the from the world and break free from the world of the Bhadralok. Also, we see that Basu is taking interest in a fellow revolutionary named Gayatri Roy, who he believes is a common school teacher. However, Banerjee told his son that he is going to arrange his marriage very soon, to which Basu scorns at the idea and tells his father that he already has a woman in mind, who's not from the Bhadralok. This puzzles his father, who subsequently can't stop his own son from storming out. Realizing that his time is running out, he tries to confess his feelings for Gayatri, but Gayatri gets offended by his immature way of doing so. Soon after, the local communist meeting that he attended hosted a speaker named Sinal, who represents a social activist and has actually seen true suffering outside of the Bhadralok. His message during this meeting is to say that in order to be communist in India is to be equally against caste as to be equally against class because in India, caste determines your social status and economic status. And here, you would think that these very left-wing radical communists would appreciate the sentiment and agree with it. However, they don't and in fact, one guy gets very angry. It is because they have been brought up under the Bhadralok to the point where they get offended or can't comprehend how their caste makes them the bourgeoisie that oppresses the proletariats. They can adamantly talk about class 
a nationality for hours, but once the subject of caste comes in, suddenly it's illogical. They are essentially hypocrites. Basu tries to catch up with Gayatri to pursue her again in a mannerful way, but his mind wanders to what would happen if he would have married Gayatri. His father would not accept him if he married outside of the Badhalok, and he would have to live with Gayatri without the luxury and security that he was used to. Also, he would have to take up the job as a common school teacher. He is apprehensive about his future. Furthermore, when he can't find Gayatri, he decides that he should throw himself into the Communist Party work, such as going to other extremely tribal communities completely out of his comfort zone. Here, we see more of that hypocrisy mentioned earlier. Basu then is greeted by his father, who is surprisingly quite happy despite the recent events. He tells Basu that he actually arranged his marriage with Gayatri because he discovered that she is from the Badralok and is very well educated. She lives in the Abadralok because that was an agreement between her and her family to have an independent life for a small period of time. Basu is shocked and annoyed at this because he was infatuated with the thought that she was a low caste who was challenging a cruel world, and by loving her, he was contributing to the fight against oppression. Thus, he did not necessarily love her, rather a make-believe idea. He finally meets up with Gayatri and tells her that he doesn't love her anymore and that she shouldn't have lied. Also, he is going to work extensively for the party and fight class and caste injustice throughout Bengal. But here is the climax of this little episode. Gayatri simply responds by saying calmly that he is bluffing. Not that he is actually bluffing, but about believing to fight against the Hindu caste system and work for the cause, but that his upbringing makes this extremely unlikely for him. He may say that he is a communist and that he may be against social discrimination, but in the end, he still holds those subtle Badralok traits within him. He shudders at a life outside of the Badralok, and he is so used to his life of luxury that was created by the caste system that he has completely been ignorant to him. There is no way that he can half-heartedly fight against the caste system and live a life deprived of its luxuries. So even if he rejects Gayatri now, and he furthers his involvement in the, in the party, eventually he himself won't allow it. It's impossible. So Gayatri in the end gives him a choice. You can either marry me and have somewhat of the life you wanted, or you can be married away by your parents to a person you didn't want at all. Defeated, it's pretty obvious which one he chooses. In the end, just like his father, Basu is an idealist. Much like a Christian who only prays on Sundays, his irrational anti-caste mind is a slave to his caste-ignorant upbringing created by the caste system. In the final episode concerning the journey of the Brahmins, we are hitting two birds with one stone because now we have Krishnamurti and Aparao in Bangalore, Karnataka. The setting is on a Wednesday in an all-male hermitage meant to create poetry, meditate, and retreat from the outside world. This community most certainly possesses an, a Hindu casteist nationalist aspect to it because the poetry is pro-Hindu and anti-British and the poets are Brahmins. Okay, let's talk about the characters' backstories in this episode. Krishnamurti is the leader of this ashram and is a bit more secular than the other Brahmins we've seen in this novel. While having the prejudiced mindset we see from all his other counterparts, he also firmly believes in the globalization of other Brahmins. But there is a, even a taint of bias in this because he justifies globalization by arguing that it aligns with Brahminism. He is very proud about his position in the ashram, his reverence as a poet, 
and the moment he is fleeting within the Brahman and literary circles of returning and respectfully imitating ancient forms of poetry. Next we have Appa Rao and Krishnamurti's other right-hand man, Srinivasa Rao. Appa Rao's origin story is that he was once an anti-government playwright, but his father got fired from his government job, possibly from his son's scripts. Being utterly scornful against the government, he wrote and published an unappealing poem about the tragedies of the British government. This bleak poem caught Krishnamurti's eye, who invited Aparao into the ashram to be his right-hand man. There's not much of a story behind Srinivasarao's origins, but he was once a mediocre poet and journalist, but after arranging a marriage for his very unattractive daughter, he became totally bankrupt because of the heavy dowry he had to pay to convince anyone to marry her. Again, because of his bitterness, he writes an article criticizing the dowry system and somewhat promoting the bride price system. Krishnamurti caught wind of this and bashed Srinivasa saying that paying to marry women is nonsense because supposedly they are impure and men are more important because they give them children. This practice of paying men for women is societal blackmail. Anyways, along with having to apologize to Krishnamurti and retract his article, Srinivasa's daughter soon became a widow for her husband died of a bad heart. Srinivasa Rao begged Krishnamurti to forgive and take him and his daughter into the ashram and Krishnamurti reluctantly agreed. Back to the present, as the poem recital continued and eventually a young poet told quite a solid poem which somewhat impressed Krishnamurti, so he said that he would so he said that he would reward this poet for his improvement. However, after the meeting, Aparao said that the youngster's poem was heavily drawn upon by a lower caste poet named Gurra. Krishnamurti is now enraged because he has to punish this poem for this reason, publicly embarrassing him in front of the entire ashram. However, Aparao ensures that no one truly noticed what happened and he will deal with this matter privately. Moreover, Krishnamurti tells Aparao that he and Srinivasa have to read all of Guram's poems to ensure nothing slips past Krishnamurti again. While Aparao was reading a file on Guram, it is revealed that he spread his poetry by going from village to village and singing rather than publishing it on paper, staying with whomever gave him shelter. His poems became actually quite popular among lower castes which means that we can infer that there is anti-caste pro-shudra Dalit hints in his poems. We also learn that his village was burned down and his wife was killed by upper castes, explaining his reason and motivations for his nomadic lifestyle. It is also believed that despite his great poetic abilities, he is very naive. Aparao decides that he can neutralize Gurum and help Krishnamurti by trapping Gurum and extracting poetic inspiration for him for his master to use. These days, Krishnamurti is unable to produce any poetry and fears that if he cannot write any soon, his revered position not only in the ashram but also in the entire Brahmin literary community will be compromised. Next we cut to Gulam, who is wandering on a road trying to make it to another village before dark, but he is too tired and decides to make himself comfortable on the road. He starts rambling to God and contemplates his impoverished nomadic lifestyle. He reflects on his poems about the glorification and admiration of the working class being accepted, but once he goes to cities, no one can understand him. As he starts to sing, Aparal rolls up to him in his cart and promises liquor if he comes with him. As you can guess, Guram avidly agrees. Aparal furthers Guram's commitment when he says that he is one among many who admire his poems. However, as they are returning, Aparao and Guram see a white cloth floating in the distance which frightens Rao, thinking it's a spirit, but Guram suspects a less supernatural cause, but refrains from saying they proceed anyways. 
As he shoves Gulam into a small shed with some vine secluded in a private spot away from the ashram, and Krishnamurti explained to the others in the grand hall that a new Brahmin has joined them, but he has to be quarantined off from the rest due to his rare skin disease. Time later, Srinivasa cannot bear to hold Gulam in the cell because of his beautiful poetry. So he frees Gulam and takes him to another shelter, where his previously mentioned widowed daughter lives. She is not supposed to be here because her presence supposedly pollutes the purity of the all-male community. But Krishnamurti made an exception and agreed to hide her away. This also explains the white cloth that resembles a ghost which frightened Aparao. Srinivasa Rao asks Gulam to take his daughter and travel with her, to which Gulam agrees but not before asking the daughter's permission first. Now we are in the endgame. Without Gulam to spark inspiration, Krishnamurti is now left with no poem on Wednesday, the recital meeting. He has nothing to say when it is his turn at the altar. He tries to make something up on the spot, but he has an epiphany. It is time to let the old, Brahminical poetry of respectful imitation come to pass. That legacy is over, and a new wave of poetry is going to be led by the Shudras and Dalits like Gurum, whose suffering and oppression can produce better original pieces. He simply cannot do anything against that movement, so that is exactly what he does now. He simply sits there, smiling at the baffled audience. Even though we are done with the plot of all the Brahmins and the atrocities to society, we are not yet finished with Untouchable God, because we now have a new influential player from abroad. The setting is during the 60s in an airplane where we are greeted to a new face, Isaiah. Isaiah is an African-American professor of sociology at North Carolina A&T College. He was born in the 20s in Georgia, and he successfully attended Patrick Henry University under the mentorship of Terence Marshall, who in fact made it possible for him to even apply to be a professor. Soon, the civil rights movement started to emerge, which excited Isaiah and his intellectual mind. Hosting debates in classes, raising awareness amongst his students, Isaiah was glad that a new age of social progress was coming. He encouraged his own students to stage a non-violent protest at a whites-only restaurant, modeled after Martin Luther's protest inspired by Gandhi. The protest gained a ton of traction from the student body, and eventually they won in the face of agitation and violence, with the restaurant serving their first black customers. Inspired by the success from his non-violent protest, Isaiah decides that he wants to visit India and learn about the culture that fostered non-violent icons like Gandhi. With the help from the local church and his savings as a professor, he is able to finance his trip. On the flight, he read Ambedkar's book, Untouchables, Who Were They and Why They Became Untouchables, as a way to immerse himself in Indian culture beforehand. Not only surprised at the direct language that Ambedkar uses to ascribe the atrocities of the caste system and Brahmin supremacy in India, he is also confused of why he has never heard of Ambedkar or why his teachings were not drawn upon in the civil rights movement. They seem more personal and concrete. After he landed at his first stop in Amsterdam, he strikes up a conversation between two Indian Brahmin professors in the terminal. They introduce themselves as Professor Chaturaj from Bengal and Professor Ayer from Tamil Nadu, doing their PhDs in Oxford and Cambridge respectively, and Isaiah introduces himself and the purpose of his India trip to investigate caste and untouchability, as well as his special fascination of Gandhi and Ambedkar with the civil rights movement. The two Brahmin professors essentially try to then label Ambedkar as a left-wing extremist and Gandhi as a true representative of the Indian social movement. Isaiah then leaves 
leaves them and boards his flight to Delhi and then goes to Madras, Tamil Nadu. In Madras, he is greeted by Christian leaders as well as the Dravida Karnagam, who is a Dalit Shruga activist in South India known as the DK. He then goes inside to eat, but to his surprise, there are no beef items. The next day, he is greeted by Jacob Pariah, whom the DK and Christians agree should be his guide for the rest of the trip to the Shivapuram village because of his reverence as an intellectual in the community. And yes, this is the same son of the original Pariah, whom Nambudri encountered in Kerala. It seems that while his father survived in Kerala, Jacob studied in a Christian missionary schools and remained in Tamil Nadu. As they traveled via car, Jacob informs the curious Isaiah about the hardships of Dalit Shudras and the prejudice of upper castes. The conversation turns towards Christianity, since both of them are Christian. And Jacob talks about how Jesus is divided in India, a touchable Jesus for the lower castes and touchable Jesus for the upper castes. This is the same notion we see in the Nambudri story with Father Chako. They eventually arrive in the Dalit colony in Shivapuram, which is essentially a slum. Everyone starts to freak out because Isaiah resembles a god with his jet black skin and unique physical features. He then meets the village head, Elumalai, and they all go inside his house where they discuss about each one's background oppression. And Isaiah soon realizes that the Dalit situation is much similar to the atrocities that the African American community has faced. He then eats some beef curry, which is in contrast to how the restaurants in Madras could not serve beef. Isaiah then notices that there's no soap or that it is custom to eat with one's hands rather than cutlery, highlighting the technological absence in Dalit communities. Then they started away from the Dalit colony towards a temple on the opposite side of the village because Isaiah wanted to examine the gods. And because the presence of two Dalits along with an African-American Beefarian is untouchable, goons that work for the temple start to assault the three. Elumalai is especially targeted and heavily injured. Now Isaiah realizes the disenfranchised state of the lower castes within the government. He tells Jacob that they should contact a local police department and report this incident, but Jacob strongly warns against this. He explains that the police don't really care about the Dalits here, and that if they were to make the situation public, more attacks would occur. And even Isaiah's word as an American citizen does not count in this rural village. But he nevertheless decides to admit Elumalai in a hospital, but even Elumalai discourages that. Isaiah prays for his recovery and encourages other Dalits to join in. Then Isaiah and Jacob go from town to town, state to state, and even they travel to Delhi and Varanasi to satisfy Isaiah's curiosity and concern about caste in India. Along the way, they meet numerous characters and encounter similar wrongdoings that we've seen in past stories, such as the division of Christianity into touchable and untouchable Jesus, which Isaiah adamantly questions, as well as Hindu antagonism to Muslims, which is shared through Sahabuddin, a Muslim scholar slash guide whose grandfather and grandmother were mauled and killed by Hindu extremists for converting, and the oppression of widowed women expressed through Mala Srivastava a researcher studying these widows who go through sati and their depraved mental and physical health. At the end of the trip, Isaiah wonders and hopes for an India without caste and thinks about the Indian social structure that seems more complex to him than it did a few weeks ago. Untouchable God ends with Isaiah's prediction. Now we've thoroughly examined the plot and the basic motifs such as misogyny, casteism, religious animosity, etc. But what is the overarching theme that ties all these little motifs and drives the plot forward? The more we examine that question, 
we find this notion of untouchability and touchability in the Indian social structure. What makes something impure or pure, untouchable or touchable, filthy or clean is what drives all the aforementioned social grievances. These notions of untouchability and touchability do not come solely from one religion, as we see even Christianity is separated, or from one political ideology, as you see communism in India ignoring the oppression of lower castes. However, untouchability and touchability come from Brahmanism, which one could make the case is the same as casteism, but I say Brahmanism specifically because people tend to associate the caste system with Hinduism. Since we see that discrimination in all social fields in India, I instead use the term Brahmanism. Whenever an ideology comes into India, it is reformed by Brahmins for Brahmins to uphold the supremacy and oppress lower castes. Whenever they go into higher institutions outside of India, misinformation is spread in order to keep lower caste's oppression hidden and the supremacy in place. Whenever there is religious conversion or acceptance of lower caste by other religions outside of Hinduism, there is internal caste turmoil caused by Brahmins to discourage and religiously indoctrinate lower caste. In these cases, whatever benefits Brahminism or Brahmin supremacy is deemed touchable, and whatever directly or indirectly defies that idea is untouchable. Untouchable God says that to fix these social problems in India, we have to actively challenge Brahminism and challenge the societal norms that they put in place in India by people similar to Professor Ilaya, hacking away at the legs of Brahminism. But if we want to keep up this social progress, we must continually ask these questions and actively challenge an eternity of supremacy. And that is why Untouchable God will forever be a timeless piece of Indian fiction. There's one part I want to talk about before I end my analysis of Untouchable God. The night of the assault upon Elumalaya, there is a big festival to commemorate Isaiah's visit. And one of the songs was, God has come to our house to stay with us, the untouchable God. Now we fear no touchable God, neither his thunder nor wrath, nor the hate and spite of his children. For the black God's hand will shelter us, and the untouchable God will touch us. Now we see this phrase, untouchable God, throughout the novel, and it is even the title. And I love the paradoxical meaning and symbolism it displays. For one, it's a reference to... For one, it is a reference to the Almighty Lord in Christianity and Allah in Islam because they are traditionally not represented by any statue or idol while Hindu deities are, so they are touchable gods, like I said before. Initially in the novel, this was used in a negative connotation. These gods are not tangible and thus are not real. Also they are worshipped by lower castes and thus they are untouchable. But here we see it used as a term of endearment. For so long I was hurt and ignored by touchable gods and their followers, but here is a god who is untouchable like me, and he represents me and protects me even though he may not be tangible or recognized by others. He is personal to me. I think it is just a neat motif that Professor Ilaya uses to express the overall division in the novel. So all in all, I really recommend Untouchable God in general because it is an important anti-caste novel that is crucial if one wants to understand the social progression of India. It is simply immaculate. Well, that is all I have for today and I hope you enjoyed this episode of OWL. If you have any comments or questions regarding episodes or the show, please let me know in the email provided in the description. Thanks for listening.